0: Support for Utah Public Radio programming comes from our members and USU's College of Agriculture and Applied Sciences, congratulating students in its Class of 2020 with more than 800 certificates, associates, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees at USU campuses statewide and online. Information at caas.usu.edu.
1: Welcome to Access Utah, I'm Tom Williams. All of us, people, fish, many other creatures depend on the water in Utah's rivers. The choices we make about how to develop water resources have big impacts on river habitats. In Decisions Downstream, an exhibit at the Natural History Museum of Utah, watershed scientist Sarah Knoll teams up with artists Chris Peterson and Karsten Meyer to explore new ways of seeing river habitats. Critical water decisions are being made in Utah, and Decisions Downstream highlights the water development tools, trade-offs, and alternatives that can guide our choices. Today, we'll talk with Sarah Knoll, Associate Professor in the Department of Watershed Sciences at Utah State University, about new water management models, trade-offs, and decision-making about watersheds, and art-science collaborations. And we'll also talk about the future of the Great Salt Lake and the fraught politics of the Mekong River system in Southeast Asia. So, uh, Sarah Nola, I guess my first question is: When you got into watershed scientists science, I'm guessing maybe you didn't envision working with artists.
2: <laughs> I didn't envision working with artists, but it was a really fun part of this particular project. I have always had an interest in trying to distill my research down for the general public through, you know, through blogs or sometimes um, popular media type of articles, and so I guess this went in that same vein but it's been very fun working with artists and they operate in a very different way than scientists do.
1: That communication piece is very important isn't it? Um, Your goal there because uh, you know rivers you you deal with what we're studying rivers affect us all right in many many ways.
2: Yeah rivers affect us all and water management in particular is something that we're not taught in school so there's a few of us Like myself, who get really into it and make water models and management models, but for most people, they're not. It's not a a process that we ever learn a whole lot about.
1: So, tell us a bit more about this exhibit. Maybe start with how did this uh, come about?
2: Yeah, this came about. um, I submitted a proposal to the National Science Foundation. And the National Science Foundation and I are both interested in getting research out to broader audiences, so not just publishing a paper and having other academics read it, but having other people see the work. And so I had met the director of the Natural, the Natural History Museum of Utah, and I contacted her and I said, hey, you know, I've, I've been thinking about um, creating an exhibit from this work. Is this something that you'd be interested in? And she was so supportive and and very helpful, Um, and so that really, I guess, gave me the the green light and the go-ahead to make this work. At the same time, I had been working with Karsten Meyer, who's a photographer, and he wrote a book on dams. It was a a photo book, and so it was pictures of dams, and I wrote an essay in it. And so it was just a particular time that I had started to work a little bit with artists, and, and I had a feeling that this could all come together.
1: So uh, maybe d- describe uh, some things that people see if they go to the Natural History Museum of Utah. Uh, you sent me a couple of examples. Um, one is, um, it's, it's of Cutler Marsh. I know that because that's in the title. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, so tell me what this is.
2: Yeah, so this, this is from my work with Karsten Meyer, and I was interested in showing habitats more how i see them and more how i represent them in models. So, with habitat, some people only see water and some people, you know, can think about every stick and plant, which is really too detailed to think about when you're when you're looking at water management models. And so, i flew two places, Cutler Marsh here here right near Logan, and then East Canyon Dam with my drone and many different sensors on my on my drone so we could get um, surface temperatures, we could get multispectral information, which shows a lot of vegetation data. We could get topography, we could get visual imagery. And then Karsten is a photographer and an artist, and he created these composite images that, that took all of those data and put them into a single image.
1: So uh, I'm reading a description here. This is from an article, if I can uh, find this. You, you mentioned the the warm stream banks, right? And then the, then there's deep pools, and then there's fast-flowing uh, uh, portions of the river. That's only a very partial description. A lot of data here. You're all uh, trying to put this in a, in a visual image so people can understand this?
2: Yeah, I was trying to show, I guess, one of the ways that I wanted to engage with people was to use a lot of imagery and a lot of amazing imagery and so that's where artists came in because of course artists can capture people and imaginations um, and feelings in a way that I think scientists do not and so that's where you know the idea of working with artists really came in is thinking of how do we visualize habitats and species that are in them in a way that that people respond to
1: by the way, I want to back up, uh, put aside the science, and go to the cool factor. So you, you, you fly a drone, do you?
2: I fly a drone, and there was some gripping moments when it was really windy over, over dams. Not quite windy enough to not fly the drone, but, but enough that I had sweaty palms, for sure.
1: Yeah. And so you, what, you got sensors and such on the drone?
2: Yep, we had sensors on the drone. Often we would have to take multiple drone flights to be able to capture all the imagery, all the data that we wanted. Um, and, yeah, and it ranged from having, well, we always had a big crew of students and, and helpers. Um, some, some days were relatively easy. Other days things went wrong, and we didn't get the data that we wanted, and we would have to go back. Um, Karsten, the artist, is, is very good at what he does, of course, and he said, Sarah, this is all going to have shadows across it, so we need to get there at dawn. So we were always flying all these drone flights at dawn right in between, you know, when, it, when the sun, right just before the sun would come up and start and start getting shadows across the landscape. Um, so that was both fun, and by the end I was, I was um, ready to get all the data and have that port be done.
1: Yeah, so for the kids listening, science isn't just about sitting in a lab, right? <laughs> no, it's not. Yeah. There's
2: certainly lab and computer time, but there's a lot of fun field work and outside time also.
1: Yeah. Uh, you mentioned uh, a word, a key word. You said the art is better at representing feelings, right? So you got mm-hmm. the data, you got the science. Uh, there's a lot of politics involved with with water, right? And so feelings come into it.
2: Yeah, feelings, emotions. Um, the, those sorts of things definitely come into it and water water management is interesting because a lot of the time it's funded by public bonds so that's a case where we would really want the public to you know to know where their water supply comes from to know trade-offs where you know with leaving water in rivers versus taking water out of rivers um, and so I didn't want to tell anybody what to think or how to vote but I did want to show them rivers and habitats and hopefully, You know, have a reaction from people from that.
1: Yeah. Um, So I believe one thing you're trying to do is expand uh, the the, the use of all the tools that the the, the science is making available. Uh, In an article I'm reading, you gave an example, uh, or the writer did, um, about uh, managers uh, planning for projects like dams. So, so what are the main factors that, uh, that that managers look at, and and how can we expand beyond that?
2: Yeah. So, water managers do a great job of looking at a whole host of factors, but they don't look at everything. So, wa- so water managers will always look at how much water the the dam site can provide, how expensive it is. There's almost always very early cost estimates of how much the dam will take will cost to build and then how much it'll cost to operate there's almost always seismic studies so that we know if we build a dam that it's going to it's going to be in a safe place and it's not going to fail but from there some of the the effects on habitats and ecosystems typically are not represented in large water management models and that's really where my research program comes in that's one of the specialties um, that my students and I do are try to incorporate environmental objectives with human objectives, like supplying water for people, for farms and and cities, and and for hydropower.
1: So um, expanding, I guess, beyond stream flow to, uh, I guess, habitat, habitat, slope, water speed, etc. So so is all this information able to be combined into one model? I guess that's what you work on.
2: Yes, it is, and it's taken... um, it's taken a, a little while to put it together, but the idea with what we're doing is that we're using all public data sets. So similar to the data that I collect with my drone, there are satellites collecting data all the time, and so these are public data. We can, you know, pull um, surface air temperatures that then we can correlate with stream temperatures. We can have in many places topography data, although not everywhere. We have. Um, Large models of the U.S. that have already been built that have velocity and slope, and um, and stream flow. and so my research has been p- taking all of these data, putting it in together, and testing to see which which of these attributes best represent habitats and species.
1: So uh, I suppose uh, you know you you I mean this this is a, g- a great step forward uh, being able to model all of this uh, so that you, and I guess you can. Map, quote unquote, you can you can model uh, large areas, whole stream systems, whole river systems.
2: Yes, yeah, so that's the idea is to model large areas and have it be—I would say the scientists have it be in a generalizable way. So that means in a new place, you might update the data that goes into the model, but you can use the same approach. You're not having to recreate a fundamentally different model. And some of this is that I can do because. Um, I'm I'm coming about in a day of age where there are lots of satellite data. There's we live in a very data rich world, so my modeling is necessarily very different different than people who were researching these same problems twenty or thirty years ago. Um, and then I was going to say something else, but I forgot.
1: Yeah, uh, <laughs> w- w- yeah, d- understand. Um, so, I mean, it's one thing uh, you know to look at a model like this, if you're a scientist, if you're used to it, if you if you have uh, you know if you've learned uh, deeply in this field, quite another thing to have a member of the general public walk up to one of these things. So is, is that what you're trying to do in this exhibit is to expand that's,
2: that? Yeah, that's exactly what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to show some habitat in simple ways that that people, Will hopefully react to and hopefully enjoy seeing it. Maybe that'll um, motivate them to go outside and spend some time on a river, whether you know whether they're fishing or hiking or, or boating, whatever it is they like to do, or, or in some of our lakes. Um, maybe it'll just as they read papers in the in the newspaper or articles in the newspaper, it will it will help them to think deeply about those or to read them in the first place. And so I just I really wanted to engage people.
1: What's the uh, you know what the reaction has been what uh, what people how they're reacting this exhibit's been up for you know a couple months right uh, a few months
2: It's been up for about 2 months and it'll stay another maybe 4 months um, so far all of the feedback I've gotten is good we are just about to launch a an evaluation of it and so I'll have students going to the museum and formally you know giving people a very quick poll to see how they felt about it and what and what they think about the exhibit, and that will help me come back into my research, so I can think about how to better um, communicate with with the public and in the future.
1: What's the what's the what? I guess I'll phrase it this way. What's the ideal future for this? Uh, it, your models in front of uh, commissions and such when when uh, water use is debated.
2: Yeah, I would say the ideal use for these types of models is to influence decision making in some way, and so um, whether by saying you know these options you know A through D are are not very promising, and E, F, and G are are much are much more promising, or identify places where we can maybe find find compromise when there's just fundamentally competing water uses. Um, both of those I see as as the end objectives for this kind of modeling.
1: If you just joined us, uh, we are talking with Sarah Knoll. She is associate professor uh, in the Department of Watershed Sciences at Utah State University. Uh, and uh, she is the uh, moving force behind an exhibit, which is uh, now at the Natural History Museum of Utah. Uh, it's named Decisions Downstream. And it's up uh, there through the end of July of this year. Next year, it moves to the Swanner Eco-Center. Um, I believe that's in Park City, right?
2: That's in Park City, yes.
1: Yeah. And uh, should remind people that the Natural History Museum of Utah is in Salt Lake City. You're listening to Access Utah. Our guest is Sarah Knoll. Uh, associate Professor in the Department of Watershed Sciences at USU. Uh, coming up in the next segment, uh, Sarah Noll says that the trade-offs in water management usually come down to five big issues. We'll hear about that. And later in the program, we'll be talking about the future of the Great Salt Lake and the politics of the Mekong River system in Southeast Asia. More following this.
3: This is Science by the Slice. How Animals Avoid Predators reveals a clever array of defense mechanisms, including being armed with venom. USU herpetologist Al Savitsky studies Southeast Asian snakes known as keelbacks that store toxins in their skin. The snakes can't produce the toxin themselves, but obtain it from toads, their favorite prey. But in an evolutionary twist, some keelback species switch their diet to earthworms, which don't have the toxin. The scientists found these species to also eat firefly larvae, not for calories, but to obtain the defensive toxin.
4: This segment of Science by the Slice is brought to you by the USU College of Science, offering degree programs in the sciences and mathematics. Details at usu.edu slash science.
1: On the next Putumayo World Music Hour, We bring you funky techno and tribal beats, cool combinations of electronic effects with traditional melodies heard in the clubs and lounges of Europe, Africa, Asia, and Australia. I'm Rosalie
4: Howarth. Join me for Global Groove, the next Putumayo World Music Hour. Join us Thursday night at 10 on Utah Public Radio. I say, try
0: tofu. I say,
4: just give me some chocolate cake instead. (laughs) On a very special edition of Zorba Pastor on Your Health, we'll serve up a decadent recipe for... Molten chocolate cake. Way better than tofu on the next Zorba Pastor on Your Health from PRX. Sunday afternoon at 1 o'clock on Utah Public Radio.
1: Thanks for listening to Access Utime, Tom Williams. My guest for the hour is Sarah Knoll, Associate Professor in the Department of Watershed Sciences at Utah State University. Uh, she is behind a, uh, a very interesting exhibit. It's right now at the Natural History Museum of Utah uh, through the end of July. And then next year it'll move to the Swanner Eco Center. It's called Decisions Downstream. I'm going to read a, a part of the blurb from the Natural History Museum All of us, people, fish, and many other creatures depend on the water in Utah's rivers. The choices we make about how to develop water resources have big impacts on river habitats. In Decisions Downstream, watershed scientist Sarah Noel teams up with artists Chris Peterson and Karsten Meyer to explore new ways of seeing river habitats. And so you're invited to come, uh, immerse yourself in beautiful large-scale images created from layers of scientific data, Original paintings that capture the transcendent experience of encountering wild fish and projections onto 3D maps that tell us our stories of our past water development choices and those we face in the future. I want to talk about the second of those. Uh, you sent uh, over a um, uh, an illustration, a, a painting, I guess it is, artist Chris Peterson and a uh, Bonneville, Bonneville cutthroat trout.
2: yes. So I was I had started working already with Karsten, the photographer, and then um, it, it, I realized that there wasn't we didn't have very very I would say sufficient art showing the species in the in the rivers that we that we really managed for. And so at that point, I reached out to Chris Peterson, who's a longtime friend and a Utah-based artist. He lives in Salt Lake City, or I think actually maybe he just moved to Holiday, but so he lives locally. And I said you know, hey, I'm doing this exhibit, would you, would you paint some pictures of fish? And so he painted a bluehead sucker, and he painted a Bonneville cutthroat trout, and they're amazing. They just, I mean, they're vibrant, they jump out at you, they're, they're huge, they just, they come to life, I think, for visitors.
1: Um, so I want to jump in there. So, uh, and those two species of fish are not by accident, right? You didn't just choose those at random. I believe you've, st- <laughs> you've studied those two. Uh, particularly, tell us about that and, and the results.
2: Yeah, I picked those two species of fish because they're two species that Utah managers are trying to conserve with the, with the, um, with the goal of, taking that, of not having them listed on the Endangered Species Act. So I'm not an ecologist, I'm not a fish biologist, but I, I work alongside them very often. And so I knew that these are two species that managers are trying to preserve in our state, um, they're popular for fishing, they're popular with anglers, and so again, they were also, well, especially Bonneville cutthroat, cutthroat trout, less so for bluehead sucker. But so there are also, you know, some species that the public could identify with.
1: Um, so uh, I think one of the things you try to find out, right, as is, is you talk about uh, managing rivers um, is, you know... How uh, what factors uh, lead to thriving of these species, right? And it could be different factors for each species. And I, in fact, I think that's what you found.
2: Yeah, we did find that. We found that. Um, well, we built you know fairly simple models, and we found pretty good fit with stream temperature for representing Bonneville cutthroat trout, and that's not totally surprising because trout are cold water species. And then we found with gradient. Is the is the best variable to represent bluehead sucker, and you know when when reaches get way too steep or get really flat, we tend to see less habitat. And we did that. Um, my student Greg Goodrum did that as part of his master's thesis, using data from um, the Migration Initiative, which is part of the Division of Water of Wildlife Resources. And so we could take our models and validate them with where. Uh, Utah agency scientists are observing fish, and then with that we could say which are the best model fits. And that was really lucky because if we had to go out and capture fish all through Utah, it would have won cost a fortune, it wouldn't have been my expertise, and we would have in this in this time period we would have only gotten a fraction of the samples. So that was very lucky that that Utah agency scientists were willing to share their data with us.
1: Uh, so I wonder if you talk about that, uh, the third uh, part of the exhibit, and there might be other parts, but at least mentioned in this blurb, uh, projections onto 3D maps that tell the stories of our past water development choices and those we face in the future.
2: Yeah, I, we have two um, two projections onto maps, and the first shows work uh, that on removing small in-stream barriers. So when I say that, people often think of Big, large water supply dams, and those sometimes will be removed. Um, there's been some famous, you know, cases on in the Elwha River and now in the Klamath in California. But these dam removals or barrier removals, we're looking at removing very small barriers. So think of things like culverts under roads and sometimes um, diversion ditches or weirs. Removing those types of barriers to help improve. Habitat and connectivity between habitats. And by the way, let me also just say most of these burial removals have been done by a few different groups, like Trout Unlimited, um, the Department of Natural Resources, and U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service.
1: I want to read uh, just a couple sentences here. You're quoted in this article in Utah State uh, today. Uh, The writer is Lael Gilbert. Uh, So here's Sarah Noll. When I look at rivers, you say I see mosaics of habitats, warm stream banks, deep pools, and fast-moving runs. I also see water that could be developed, uh, delivered to cities and farms or used to generate hydropower. Uh, the decisions we make to manage our rivers are complex with trade-offs between developing water and maintaining the ecosystems that sustain us. And you say, my goal is to bring these trade-offs to the forefront so we can ask ourselves as a society what a balance we value. So that is important. There are any, any of these decisions, there are trade-offs. We need, I guess you're saying we need to clearly see those trade-offs to make good decisions.
2: That's exactly what I'm saying. I'm saying we need to quantify those trade-offs and be able to think about them to make better decisions.
1: Uh, so, can you give me an example of of some some trade offs that I guess it was right there in your, your example? Uh, you you know you need to pre- you want to preserve habitat, uh, want to pre- want to generate power. What uh, what are the trade offs that we're usually looking at?
2: Yeah. So the well, the trade offs with water usually are are I would say five big issues. There's water supply, so that's both to cities and farms. There's hydropower development there's flood protection or flood control. There's recreation, which is important, thinking of states like Utah, where people might come just for a fishing vacation. And then there's environmental uses, so keeping our, our rivers healthy and our, and our ecosystems healthy. And sometimes, not surprisingly, those, those big water uses conflict, right? We could take some water out of rivers for a while and have very few trade-offs have very few repercussions but after a while we usually get to some tipping point where there are repercussions or sometimes we could take water out of rivers and it's okay as long as we maintain cool stream temperatures and give give fish and other biota somewhere to be some habitat that can sustain them.
1: You're also quoted as saying it doesn't have to be a zero-sum game. I think sometimes we assume that it has to be. Sometimes it probably is. But uh, often, sometimes, we can find a a balance that isn't a zero-sum game. Is that what you're saying?
2: Yep. Sometimes we can find things that aren't a zero-sum game. And these thinking about taking, removing small in-stream barriers is one such case. So one of my master's students a couple years ago, her name is Maggie Kraft. she wrote a paper looking at taking out big dams, which would affect water supply and sometimes hydropower, or removing lots of in-stream barriers. And she, she found that removing lots of these in-stream barriers is much cheaper, doesn't affect water supply, but can, but can really connect aquatic habitat in some fundamental ways. And with those, that type of modeling, then because we put all the instream barriers in the model, then we could really look at which are the most important barriers to remove. And so that's a place that modeling like mine can really inform decision-making, and hopefully we can find the cheapest decisions that give us the best result.
1: Probably an easier lift politically, too, I would imagine, you know, removing some, it is,
2: it's easier some smaller barriers yeah. than
1: the big dams, yeah. Um, what do you what do you think people um, I, I could imagine managers obviously looking at these models and, and wanting to, to to see them uh, but but I think I think I uh, hear your desire to to get this out just to the general public.
2: Yeah, usually there's to actually run the models usually takes some technical skills. And so usually on my website, once everything is completed and published, usually we do, I do put code, I you know, host that in repositories so anyone can use it. That being said, I don't think I've ever had anyone from the general public start to download these models and use them, although I would love to see that. That would be great. But it is things that other water resources managers and decision makers might take a look at.
1: You listed the five factors there at, in uh, you know in in water management, and and that you look at in watershed science. Uh, is any one of those coming to the fore more than it has been in the past, at least in our area?
2: I think in our area, water supply is. We have um, we have on the horizon some possibilities of large new dams on the Bear, Bear River. Um, we have. We talk a lot about conservation in the state. We're a state that we use a lot of water. Um, we talk sometimes about water supply moving from agricultural water uses to urban supplies. We have a um, new test water bank in Cache Valley and some other places in the state. And so I would say water supply, thinking about how we're going to provide water um, you know, with climate variability, with maybe longer droughts and with the growing population that we anticipate for Utah. I would say that's the the primary goal that folks are are focusing on right now.
1: If you just joined us, we were talking with Sarah Knoll. She's associate professor uh, in the USU Department of Watershed Sciences at Utah State University. Her website is org, And uh, she has an exhibit uh, which is ongoing at the Natural History Museum of Utah. In Salt Lake City, it's, it runs through July 31st. It's called Decisions Downstream, uh, blending science and uh, data with art. Uh, she's teamed up with artists Karsten Meyer and Chris Peterson to uh, visualize water resources decision-making. This is funded by the National Science Foundation. Next year, uh, this exhibit will be going to the Swanner Eco Center in Park City. And you are listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Uh, coming up, following a break, in our final segment with Sarah Null, we'll change gears. We'll be talking about the future of the Great Salt Lake and the politics of the Mekong River System in Southeast Asia. Hope you'll join us following this break.
0: Support for Utah Public Radio programming comes from our members and Utah State University MBA, offering opportunities to achieve new goals and further careers in the new year. The fall semester application deadline is June 15th. Information can be found at HuntsmanMBA.com. You're listening to Utah Public Radio. Thanks for tuning in today and stay with us. Coming up today, we have both sides of the aisle at 10 o'clock and Undisciplined at 1030. Freakonomics at 11 and at noon, we have BBC Programming.
1: The presidential election and its aftermath, the ongoing pandemic, public lands and environmental issues. Utah Public Radio has been here with you through it all. And we'll continue to cover all the major events and issues so important to you. Programs like Morning Edition and Access Utah, to name just two, are listener supported. And our spring member drive is coming up. We're asking you right now to make an early donation to start the drive off strong. Please give now at upr.org. And thank you.
0: It's 1982, and Marlene is a successful career woman in Margaret Thatcher's England. As uh, there's personal assistant to a top executive in a multinational. Is
4: that where you want to be in 10 years? I can't think about 10 years. Well, you haven't got the speeds anyway.
0: Top Girls by Carol Churchill. Next time on L.A. Theatre Works.
3: Tune in Friday night at 9, right here on Utah Public Radio.
4: This Week in This American Life, for a long time, people have said the SATs are biased against certain groups of kids and we should not require them. And then this year, because of the pandemic, most of the top colleges stopped.
0: My my mom was the first person I told. So I ran to her, gave her a hug. We like jumped.
4: Who wins and who loses as the pandemic throws college admissions into chaos this week. Tune in
3: Saturday morning at 10 here on Utah Public Radio.
1: We're back with Sarah Knoll. I'm Tom Williams with uh, Access Utah. Thanks for listening. We're talking about water, watershed sciences, and uh, how we visualize that using art. Sarah Knoll is associate professor in the Department of Watershed Sciences at Utah State University. Uh, she has an exhibit, uh, which is open right now at the Natural History Museum of Utah, called Decisions Downstream. That runs through July 31st. She's teamed up with artists Karsten Meyer and Chris Peterson to help visualize water resources decision-making. This is funded by the National Science Foundation. I want to go to another watershed entirely, talk about the the, the Mekong River. You're quoted in a National Geographic article on that. But before we do that, anything else you'd like to say about this exhibit?
2: Um, I don't think so. I think we've covered the big ones. I would encourage people to go see it. Um, it was really fun to make. I appreciate everyone at the Natural History Museum of Utah for working with me. They were phenomenal to work with, and I look forward to going out and, and people checking it out.
1: All right. Very good. Through the end of July, Natural History Museum of uh, Utah. That's uh, I think it's on or near the uh, University of Utah campus in Salt Lake City. So, uh, as I was reading this article, this is uh, linked from uh, your website, um which is, uh, what is Um Make sure I got that correct. Yes, yeah, Um It's about the Mekong River, and the headline, uh, this is from the summer of 2019. Mekong River at its lowest in 100 years, threatening food supply. Subtitle, A Combination of Drought and Controversial Upstream Water Politics is Setting Up Southeast Asia for Potential Disaster. And on this program, we talk a lot about the Colorado River and the, and the politics. And, and reading this article, I was thinking, uh, wow, this, the politics here kind of make the Colorado River politics look, seem a little quaint. Um, so uh, how did you come to, I guess, be familiar with the Mekong and study this?
2: I have—it I, was through my friend and collaborator, whose name is who's Zeb Hogan— Zeb studies big fish and big fish conservation. We were friends from when we both went to graduate school at UC Davis. And he was writing a proposal on, on studying um, fish and sustainability in the Mekong River. And he said, Sarah, I would really like to have a water, environmental water person, water resources management expertise on this proposal. Um, and so I joined forces with him and a number of other people, and we wrote, we wrote a proposal to USAID, um, and, and we were funded. And so then I started going to um, Cambodia at least once a year until COVID hit, and now I haven't gone for a little bit. Um, but it's been great because I've been able to go out there and see, see the Mekong River, see its tributaries, see some of the dams that are being built there, see the amazing fish biodiversity that's in the river, um, talk to people, sometimes if they speak English or sometimes through interpreters, because my Khmer is not very good. Um, but so it's been a great, a great project and an eye-opening project.
1: So you were in Cambodia, were you?
2: Yes, I've been yeah. all in Cambodia.
1: Yeah. So the Mekong is, uh, I mean, it's it's several nations, right? Um, Southeast Asia. Um, one of the problems here with with it, at least at that point I don't know how it is now but uh, at least at that point uh, it was very dry and one of the problems I was reading here is at least on the some of the fish uh, species is if there's they call it a pulse is it if there's no change in the in the water level um, th- from flooding uh, that could be a problem
2: Yes the Mekong River had a very um, abrupt, an obvious pulse a flood pulse so there's in southeast asia there's a very um, set dry season followed by a very very obvious wet season and so of course that translates into hydrology and into runoff and into stream flow and fish use those those pulses as cues to migrate often between spawning and rearing habitat and so with with dams being built that flood pulse has already been diminished and we anticipate that it will continue to be diminished.
1: One of the factors here is a bunch of dams being built on the Mekong, right? Uh, uh, this originates in China, I believe, and then, yep, and then it flows in south.
2: China. It starts in China, and it goes through Myanmar, Thailand, Laos, Cambodia, and Vietnam. And so far, I think about 60 hydropower dams have been commissioned with over, I want to say, 10,000 megawatts of power. So. Bringing a lot of power to this region, um, but again, there's trade-offs now with with fish production and and fish biodiversity.
1: Yeah, and uh, I don't know if China meant to flex its muscle with these dams upstream. I think they were they were testing something out, but it it really lowered the level for the lower stream uh, countries. And now apparently they're worried. You know, China has has some power here with those dams upstream.
2: Yes, yeah. 10 has a lot of power with the dams upstream. Um, and there's not always great data sharing or communication between, between those nations. And so the, the lower Mekong riparian countries um, probably feel like they don't have very much control over the Mekong, even though the Mekong River, um, at least Cambodia, but I think the, the whole region, the, the, the people there eat fish. That's their main source of protein. So if the hydrology changes so much that fish can no longer be produced at some, some large levels, and that threatens food security for the whole region.
1: Um, so you're, uh, you're quoted in this article, again, National Geographic, I think it's July issue of 2019. Uh, you say that the, what we've been talking about about the dams highlights underlying inequities among Mekong Basin uh, countries. So richer nations, uh, you know, they put in the hydropower and they get the benefits from that. Poorer nations are more affected by environmental degradation. And as you just said, foods, reduce food security.
2: Yes. And that's exactly right. Some countries, the richer nations are building more hydropower dams and then they can act as power exporters. They can export power to other countries. So other countries might be trying to buy power, but they're also facing... The environmental repercussions of these dams. So there very much are losing countries and winning countries Hmm. in the in the Mekong Basin.
1: Understand there is a commission uh, formed by these nations. China, I think, doesn't participate.
2: Right. There's a commission called the Mekong River Commission, and China doesn't participate in it. Yeah. And never.
1: What's the? I don't know if you kept touch with that. What's the situation now? Is it? uh, It was very dry at at that point a couple of years ago. I don't know what it is now.
2: There's been a number of subsequent dry years, and so I think I think that year in 2019 was the worst, but 20, 2020 was also dry. Um, so we'll see what this year brings. But there's been a number of dry years that I think partly were based on climate and partly were based on um, dam impacts.
1: So as a watershed scientist, um, I I don't know. You went into watershed science. I don't know whether you, you uh, were aware that you'd probably have to have at least an unofficial minor in political science, right? Water is lifeblood, <laughs> right? Water, there are power struggles. This is an illustration.
2: There, yep, there are big power struggles. And, of course, in the Western USA, we know that inherently, that there are power struggles over money, or excuse me, over water, my background, my bachelor's degree is in economics and I always appreciate that because at least it it helps me thinking about the valuation part, which is a nice way to to connect with people who maybe don't think about acre feed or CFS of water, but they do think in terms of dollars and so that's a nice way to connect. But yeah, the political science part is a whole is a whole nother ball of wax. Um, and usually we bring in some experts to help us with that side.
1: Yeah. Uh, by the way, I didn't follow up with the, the the folks that you met, got to know a little bit there in Cambodia. Um, what was your impression?
2: You know, the people in Cambodia are so are so nice and welcoming. Um, I would say they, they often don't have, it's hard to wrap your head around the change that will come to, to their rivers with all these dams. And that's very similar to when we built dams across, across the U.S. I don't think anyone at that time really really could conceptualize all the changes that we would see decades later um but but that's the the place that Cambodia is in right now.
1: Yeah uh so what obviously very involved with this exhibit uh, very involved with modeling uh, what else you're working on?
2: I am working yeah on modeling I'm working on I get. I would say my research program is trying to improve um, the environmental representation of, of or representation of environmental objectives in water modeling. I'm working across the western U.S. in Idaho and Utah and California, previously Nevada and Oregon. So I work a lot in the western U.S. where we have major water scarcity and drought problems um, and then increasingly in, in other countries like Chile and Cambodia and, and the lower Mekong. Um, I forgot, again, I forgot what else I was
1: going to say with that. Right, right, that's, that's a variety of things. Uh, by the way, we just have a couple of minutes left here. Um, on on your website, serenol.org, you have a couple of articles that you've uh, you put up about the Great Salt Lake. Uh, I don't know if you've done any studies there, been involved with, with that. It's, it is quite the phenomenon. Um, a vast swaths of, of uh, what used to be underwater are now exposed.
2: Yes. Um, Great Salt Lake has been, the the lake level of Great Salt Lake has been reduced, we estimate, by about 11 vertical feet, and that's from people using water, so people taking water out before it gets to Great Salt Lake. So an important thing for Great Salt Lake, um, some that I've been working on and countless other researchers have been working on is thinking about how high should the Great Salt Lake be? How high should that level be to maintain salinity and all the ecosystems and biology that depends on that lake? And then maybe how to get how to get water, some water allocations or dedications to Great Salt Lake, so that it doesn't turn into one of the other numerous saline lakes around the world that has been declining in recent years.
1: Yeah, you you, you see pictures of some of those lakes, uh, some of which have dried up almost entirely. It's um, it, uh, it punches you in the gut.
2: Yes, it does. It's, yeah, it's terrible. And, and it's been fun for me to work on Great Salt Lake because I started actually where I became interested in water resource, resources management and watershed sciences was when I worked for a couple summers at Mona Lake. And that's what really, I think, kind of lit a fire in my belly and made me interested in water resources issues. So it's, it's been really nice to get a faculty position here at Utah State University where I'm so close to the Great Salt Lake and I can continue on with that interest.
1: So you're saying there there are some options apparently, P- perhaps this is reversible.
2: Um. Yeah, I think it's not too late for Great Salt Lake for sure. I would I would say I'm a glass half full person on that. I think we have a good number of options. We have not passed any threshold at all, um, and and hopefully the the citizens in Utah really value our lake and you know and and will recognize that i think a number of years ago there was an idea or maybe a couple decades ago there's an idea that water that flowed to great salt lake was wasted and i would say i see that changing and now people don't talk about water that goes to great salt lake as being wasted they think about it is going to great salt lake and maintaining this great lake that we all recognize and recreate on in different ways or value in different ways
1: we've reached the end of our uh, time here with Sarah Knoll. She's associate professor in the Department of Watershed Sciences at Utah State University. And uh, she has an exhibit. It's open right now at the Natural History Museum of Utah uh, through uh, July. Uh, It's named Decisions Downstream. And she's teamed up with uh, artists Karsten Meyer and Chris Peterson to visualize Water Resources Decision-Making. This is funded by the National Science Foundation. That exhibit next year will move to the Swatter Eco-Center in Park City. And Sarah Knoll's website is org. Sarah Knoll, it's been a pleasure. Thank you for taking some time with us.
2: Yeah, thanks so much for chatting with me.
1: And We appreciate you joining us for Access Utah. We're going to round out the program today with uh, an episode from our popular uh, food series, uh, Bread and Butter. <music>
4: Next up is Bread and Butter, a culinary chronicle with Lael Gilbert. There are plenty of naturally green foods out there. Peppers, honeydew melon, lettuce, grapes, some kinds of cabbage. And then there are foods in my kitchen, and maybe yours, that are not meant to be green, but are. Old bread, old cheese, old sour cream. The color green can be tricky when it comes to food because one part of our brain tells us that it's healthy. Yum, green asparagus. And another part wants to chuck it onto the compost pile. Ooh, green Chinese food. This is a great week to consider green foods with St. Patrick's Day right around the corner. A lot of you probably plan to celebrate by cooking up a big pot of beef stew and crusty soda bread or corned beef and roasted red potatoes. Traditionally, I celebrate St. Patrick's Day by cooking green pancakes. I mix up a batch of regular pancakes, add some green food coloring, then undercook them on the griddle so that you can still see the green underneath the golden brown. They taste exactly like normal pancakes, except undercooked. It's not really much of a celebration, to be honest, and hasn't been since my kids left elementary school. So I'm going to make a call this year. As a form of celebratory feasting, the green pancakes just won't cut it anymore. I want to experience the green. I want to taste the green. And I don't want a green-stained stripe on my tongue from surplus food coloring after the meal. So here are a few ideas for a St. Patty's Day feast that go beyond green tinted pancakes or mashed potatoes or what have you. All the nitty gritty details of these naturally green recipes can be found by going to the UPR website and clicking on bread and butter. If you like deviled eggs, you'll likely be a big fan of avocado deviled eggs. As gooey and pleasant as the dressed yolks are alone, the addition of some lovely green mashed avocado adds some satisfying and healthy fat and the smooth and attention-grabbing flavor. This recipe also calls for finely chopped cilantro and lemon, both the juice and the zest, to be blended into the yolk mash. In addition to, ooh, a crumble of bacon pieces to top off the green vehicle of goodness Or St. Patrick's Day is as a good excuse as any to get your family drinking green smoothies. There are a lot of variations on this hippie favorite, but I like it with pineapple, mangoes, bananas, and spinach. It doesn't take that much spinach to saturate your smoothie with color. You can show off your healthy bling whether you use half a cup of baby spinach leaves or three. Adding leafy greens to your smoothie gives you vitamins and fiber and can help stabilize your blood sugar and lower cholesterol, which is a good idea if you've eaten too many avocado deviled eggs. Okay, I know this is forcing some cross-hemisphere fusion cooking, but why not salsa verde chicken the St. Patrick's Day? New York Times Cooking has an exceptionally good slow cooker recipe that is spicy, saucy, and easy. You can use it as taco or enchilada filling or add some corn and beans and have a one-pot meal. The sauce gets its lovely muted green color from salsa verde, green chilies, and jalapenos. And then the recipe asks you to sprinkle on top a bright chop of scallions and cilantro. No food coloring required. Irish Americans wear the green as a reminder that they are Irish first and foremost. The colors of the Irish flag are green, white, and orange. The green symbolizing Irish nationalism, the orange, the orange men of the north, and the white symbolizing peace. The folklore belief that green should be worn to make you invisible to leprechauns is actually an American invention. And... Fun fact, St. Patrick the Man is actually tied to the color blue. So maybe you could even try blueberries this March, or currants, or blue cheese. Just avoid whatever blue foods you find on top of the compost pile. This is Lael Gilbert for Bread and Butter.
1: That's the latest bread-and-butter segment, Lail Gilbert there. And uh, speaking of Lail Gilbert, we have some uh, fun episodes of Access Utah planned for our member drive. The member drive begins on Saturday. And so next week during Access Utah, we'll have some especially good programs. Lail Gilbert will be joined by Lynn McNeil on Monday. Lynn McNeil, a folklorist at Utah State University, will hear some bread-and-butter segments. We'll talk about Lynn McNeil's latest book, which is This is the Plate. Uh, Utah's food heritage and culture and folklore. On Tuesday, we'll be talking with emergency room doctor and UPR member Marion Bishop. Uh, she's also a writer, and uh, so we'll talk about how things have been going during the pandemic in the emergency room. We'll take a look at vaccines and talk about a possible endgame uh, to the pandemic with Marion Bishop. On Wednesday, our guest for the hour is Jason Gilmore. USU Associate Professor of Global Communication. We had a conversation with him and his co-author just a couple of weeks ago about uh, President Trump's communication style. We'll talk about that and much else in the world today. And on Thursday during the member drive next week, uh, writer and photographer Stephen Trimble is our guest. We'll talk about environmental issues. We hope you'll join us each of those days as well, of course. And we thank you for joining us for Access Utah today.
0: Support for Utah Public Radio programming comes from our members and the Cache Valley Center for the Arts. Presenting Riri Woodbury Dance Company, Utah's contemporary dance company, April 12th at 7.30 at the Ellen Eccles Theater in Logan. Tickets are available at cachearts.org or call 435-752-0026.
1: Can and should the U.S. pay reparations in the form of direct cash payments for more than 200 years of slavery? The moral cost, the racial trauma embedded and inscribed on our genes is real and calculable. I am not an enemy of reparations, but I have deep concerns about it. The United States and reparations for slavery. That's next time on Intelligence Squared U.S. Friday morning at 10 on Utah Public Radio.